All right, half a day. Welcome to another exciting episode of Fanatsu. I am joined here today by Sipulan. Hi. We're, we're using your alias. We're not using your real name. Okay, it's sad. I know you're on the run from your family. <laughs> I don't want the FBI to come get me. Why? Have you been renting mailboxes hey, to hey, anybody hey. or something? Or? <laughs> Spencer. So my name is Michael Lohan Bavakwa. And we are your hosts for this very interesting and slightly different episode of Finanzu. So we collected questions from viewers, listeners, followers, and also trolls and haters. <laughs> and we're going to do our best to answer some of your questions. And so um, as you're watching this, feel free to comment with any more questions, and we may get to them in a future episode. And so... You want to do a plug real fast before we get oh, started? Yes, of course. Well, okay. Is this the, is the camera that it's supposed to be the other way? Ah, okay. Is, how does it look? Maulika? It's bonito. Okay. Okay. You're, Anyways. You, you look good from all angles. Yes. Oh, hi. Hey, I'm worried it's, it's not your, it's, it's not your uh, angle. Oh, God. Okay. So, uh, yes, Guahu uh, Pulan, and I create a YouTube channel called Pulan Speaks where I make uh, Chamorro lessons, I make everything. It's one of the best, one of the fantastic channels on YouTube. And I think one of the few uh, channels that dwells into topics of Micronesia through an academic yet still manageable way. So check out Pulan Speaks on YouTube and please subscribe and like my videos. Would you like to advertise your, uh, your company? I'm already overexposed. I'm oversaturated. I'm actively looking for more ways to be less on camera <laughs> and less out there. But, um, and so, as I was mentioning, this episode comes from all of you that watch and a couple of questions from our patrons. All right. And so remember, as a patron, uh, you get special access. You know, there's a WhatsApp chat where you can always sort of ask the Fanatsu crew questions. Um, and then... We can uh, sort of bring some of those questions out into the show or we can answer them more directly. And so remember to sign up, patreon.com slash if you're interested in supporting independent and indigenous media. All right, so Siguenzama, uh, the sort of the, the producer, the master producer, is over there. Um, he is currently taking a lot of risks, isn't he, no? Because there's the dengue fever outbreak on Guam and he <laughs> has no sleeves. Todd said sleeves. You will never see him sleeveless. Sleeve. Or with sleeves. Gaimangas. Unless it's for charity. But he's got a nice spot on his arm where I think he's going to get a mosquito coil tattoo <laughs> as a deterrent. He's never going to wear sleeves, but he may get a mosquito coil tattoo there to fool some of the, the, the lesser, the mosquitoes, the nyamu of lesser intellect. Iman Maduro na nyamus, yeah. All right. Let's get to these questions. So as I said, these came from people who have a sincere interest in learning more about issues of decolonization. They also came from people who don't have a sincere interest, people who are trolls, as, as we were talking about earlier, haters. As we were talking about earlier, I get a number of these every day, every week. And so sometimes it's fun to sort of uh, answer them and deal with them like this. And so number one, what are pragmatic solutions for an independent Guahan? How could we sustain ourselves? Do you have any sort of ideas? Oh, yes, I have. I have several. I have several ideas. You know, for, for one thing, and, uh, you know, when I'm assuming when you say pragmatic solutions for an independent Guahan, I'm going to assume that, you know, Guam already became independent. So now, you know, we, we have sovereignty and so on. So in, in Joseph Bradley's uh, 2000 uh, study uh, where, he, where he was talking about independence, he actually did talk about uh, possible economic avenues for Guam to sustain itself. And that included, for example, that Guam is, is, in, a, is in the middle of like the Asia and the United States, that Guam could serve as a great telecommunication hub for, for telecommunications uh, businesses to be here. Furthermore, there's other things where the current political status limits Guam's uh, development economically, such as, 
in terms of like not having a slaughterhouse here because FDA regulations demand for to have certain uh I, I forgot the details of it, mm. but the point is is that regu- federal regulations prevent Guam from having a slaughterhouse to have locally uh, produced meat here slaughtered and approved. Mm. And that would significantly cut the costs. And there's also, for example, also from the, the study done by Joseph Bradley, the chief economist or when the economists are on Guam, vice president of Bank of Guam. He also mentioned how there's a lot of land that's just sitting where the military bases are at. It's just sitting. Nothing's happening to it. And he mentioned that if this land was to be used for economic purposes, it could generate up to, I forgot the exact number, but maybe up to like 40 to $80 million of revenue, assuming it's put to good use. So there are many avenues. There's even, you could go to the, the World Bank or the IMF, you know, also to get these international development uh, loans, which you could use for high capacity infrastructure instead of just, you know, these uh, federal subsidies for, for programs that we're dependent on. So we could actually use the money from these, these development loans to actually be used to develop infrastructure, sustainable infrastructure. Mm. There's many more that no, Sibivakwa could elaborate. And so to, to also quote Joseph Bradley, um, so for those of you that haven't read his, his study, it is from 20 years ago or almost 20 years ago. He did do an updated presentation at the Fenhita conference recently. Um, but it's an important reminder that independence is the status that has the greatest economic potential. Now, it has that because it is the least defined at the onset. So if you become a state, it's defined because you are entering into an existing political relationship and therefore economic relationship with the U.S. Independence would mean you'd have a lot more freedom, but you would also have to sort of do your homework in putting uh, an, an independent nation, the economy, the government together. And so the what you said about land is very important. We're used to thinking about our economy in one way. We think, for example, that the bases give us a lot of money. Right. I mean, the bases don't actually give Guam a lot of money. Um, there's secondary sort of incidental indirect spending that happens because of the bases. There's the fact that people who have access to them can buy cheaper things there. But none of those things are real infusions into the economy. Section 30 money comes because of the organic tax. It doesn't come because the bases are here. Now, you could argue that it's meant to compensate Guam for the bases, but it's not part of the actual agreement. And so what we should always think about when we're looking to the future is um, if, for example, the bases were to be downsized, it doesn't mean the end of the world. When people say, what could we do pragmatically? You could definitely continue to expand tourism but you could expand it in ways in which the benefits and the monies from it stay and filter through the wider island as opposed to where they are now in which they're highly concentrated and they tend to travel, they tend to leave. And so we have an economy in which billions of dollars come in, but it doesn't necessarily stay. And so um, even if we were to, even if some of those bases were to close down, what studies have shown in places like the Philippines and Okinawa is that military bases are actually a lot of dead land because not simply because of the toxins that are sometimes in them, but because you can't use them for much. They take up a lot of space and they're not really used to produce things for the local economy. So they take up space. They tend to affect the prices of things outside of them but they don't really contribute directly to the economy. And so in Okinawa and in the Philippines, when they have closed bases, the returned land provides a lot more. In Okinawa, for example, some areas that have been returned, for, uh, they, were then incorporate, they were then built up as tourist locations, increasing sort of the tourist appeal um, of Okinawa itself. And so there's a lot of options out there. And it's good for us to think about that because, um, you know, we want to develop an economy that supports us. 
We want to develop an economy that is beneficial to us, not just beneficial for a few, not just beneficial. I'm, I'm like Bernie Sanders. An economy for everyone, not just for the 1%. But, um, okay, so thank you. Thank you for that question. That question came from somebody's uh, cousin who doesn't think it's possible. <laughs> but but one, one thing I'll just add is that, again, one of the probably the best things about being a sovereign, independent state is access to these, uh, these international fund which is extremely important for development and for for using it for projects and so on. So that's one thing right away. Boom. Okay. All right. So we're going to move to the next question now, number three. So what is the upcoming, upcoming governance study, the self-governance study, and how can it help us move towards decolonization? And so this one comes from Ed, not, not this Ed, another <laughs> Ed. No, no, no. Oh, Pulan, 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 Ed, Pulan. And so, um, all right. So, for those of you that do not know, uh, the governance study is something that the Commission on Decolonization has commissioned um, using a grant from the Department of Interior. So, the grant which paid for the Fanhita Conference. Uh, a good chunk of it is being used to fund a governance study. The governance study has two different components to it. One is that it will give us a portrait of our status quo today, show the ways in which we are hampered in our economic development, the ways in which we are deficient in terms of our self-governance. The other way will be a sort of a governance study which will look at the different options, statehood, independence, and free association, and talk about um, what things would be like or what potential would be there under these different options. And so um, something uh, similar was proposed under the Gutierrez administration when they were planning, and they did produce a study, although it was a very cursory study. It was simply about what things would look like, but it didn't have a lot of hard data behind them or any sort of real, uh, yeah, nothing, no real extrapolations. And so this is meant to be something then which we can look at to use in our education. Because I don't know about you, Pulan, but you know I re regularly uh, encounter people who feel like everything is fine the way it is, that we don't need to change anything, or they think that one status well, is impossible or one status would mean that we would all descend into hell and, and so on. And so I think that sort of having a, an objectively sort of uh, created study by experts, I think it could help move the conversation forward. How famous am Oh, what he said. <laughs> yeah, so, so you, know, um, you know, what one of the key things about... Uh, any political status uh, change or self-determination is is having the information. And the good thing about, you know, today in today's world is that there has been over 70 cases of country of, of former colonies self-determining their futures uh, post-World War II. So we can learn from those countries. We can learn what they did right, what they did wrong. And then we could apply it here, you know, in addition to looking at the the specific uh, idiosyncrasies of Guam situations. So again, there is a vast amount of information. Someone just needs to go out and synthesize it. We just got to get the experts, mm -hmm. make them look at it, and there you go. Mm -hmm. Although, remember that if you're looking for information now, because this study won't be completed for, for several more months, um, if you're looking for information now, Independent Guahan has a monthly general assembly. There'll be one next month. Um, on the last Thursday, I believe the 24th of October, and it's a chance every where you can learn about how things will be under independence because we produce a fact sheet called Hitalatmon, which has information on how something could be improved or how, how it could be changed to better suit our lives um, if we were independent, whether reducing government corruption, developing sustainable agriculture, uh, preserving our cultural resources, supporting the Chmor language, developing indigenous models of rehabilitation and, and uh, uh, punishment and justice. We have done 
uh, stud- we have done fact sheets on all of those things, talking really? about different countries. Yeah, every month. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we and we do that because too often people say, "Man, Hamzui, man, independentista, like puraha sinenti, pura corazón lo tadza tintanos, tadza mismo idiamo." You have lots of passion. You don't have a lot of facts. You don't have a lot of sort of thought out ideas. But that's that's not true. All right, let's go to number five. And so connected in line with sort of the discussion we've had so far, how can Guam become independent when so many Chamorros are dependent on forms of federal funding and social programs like food stamps and housing assistance? This question comes from one of our patrons, uh, Ikazuhu Michael Mendiola Garcia. And so Sidus Masi, Purifanai Senmo. And so what are your thoughts? How can, uh, or I can, hold yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so first of all, one thing that we always have to point out is that if people are apprehensive about decolonization or independence, that's that's okay. Because it, it would mean changes. And if you're used to sort of sustaining and supporting yourself one way, it's, it's natural to feel... Uh, apprehensive if somebody tells you you could support yourself another way you know you may not want to trust that so that's why sort of these studies these reports are important to help people see the possibilities but it's okay to feel to be suspicious about it all right so I always want to put that out there if somebody comes at me with with uh, a question like this I'm not gonna tell them you're blind you don't see the big picture you know, I don't say you're brainwashed, because in truth, these are normal questions. These are normal questions, reasonable, legitimate questions. And so for this, we have to think, number one, when we look at the health of the island and the state of the island today, these federal programs definitely support people. Do they sustain us? That's a, that's a difficult conversation that we have to have is because when you think about something like food stamps, food stamps exist, they benefit poor people, but the reason that they exist is to support corporations that make all of the processed and cheap food that people often buy with food stamps. And so we benefit from it, absolutely. But is the benefit also part of the larger problem of our health statistics? Or is it a part of, is it also something which contributes to sort of our disconnection from the land, overall poverty? And so when thinking about how independence would mean that we wouldn't have access to these federal programs, it's, it's okay to be nervous, it's okay to be cautious. But at the same time, we'd have to think, what could we replace them with, which might benefit us? So for example, um, what if instead of food stamps being aimed at just sort of buying all of the cheap stuff which we import, what if food stamps, a program, was designed to support specifically only that which is local? That way, you would create the circular economy. See, so the conversation over independence is not simply this thing up in the clouds. It's actually about all of these basic elements of our life that we haven't thought about because we just assumed that it must be better because it comes from off-island. That, oh, if it comes in on a ship, it must be better than whatever is here. And we've, do, we've bought into a system which disempowers us, takes away our money. And so, I mean, I would, I would argue one example that Victoria Leon Gro always brings up is that the federal money is beneficial, but it also comes with restrictions. So, for example... If you live in housing which is sort of Gura supported, you are not allowed to have a garden because federal regulations say you can't do that because it's, it's ugly. It's an eyesore. Why wouldn't you actually, if you're going to give people support for housing, why not require them to have a garden? Wouldn't that be a better idea? So part of this is, will federal assistance, federal assistance would of course be reduced. And it would have to be replaced with other things. But I like the idea that we could try to create programs which would benefit, which would benefit us more than the current programs we have today. Right, and 
And again, like, like I said in, my, in the first uh, question, my first answer is that the, the access to uh, high capacity you know, infrastructure development from international organizations by becoming a sovereign state could be used for those programs that, you know, that to sustain, to sustain Guam, you know, through food, through healthy alternatives to food and through housing and things like that. You know, that, that's also one of the reasons why, for example, in Somalia, you see Somaliland, they want to uh, separate from Somalia because they want access to these international, uh, international funds so they could develop their country further and so on. So again, I'm just going to keep throwing that out because that's a very crucial part. Mm. And, and also with the conversation, which includes, uh, like, like, uh, like, uh, Che Bivak was said, I mean, like, like Bivak was said, where he mentioned, uh, about like having a garden into your house and, you know, th these are, you know, these are ideas. These are imaginative ideas that one must have because in the current model, we are stuck with the current framework. So that's why we got to think outside these models, which includes like gardens outside, which includes, you know, you know, banning certain types of foods, mm. like what some European countries do because they're known to increase the rates of diabetes, like, you know, those high, high fructose and all that stuff. Mm. And with sovereignty, solutions like that could be applied. Mm. Yeah, very true. Let's go to our next question. So this is a this is a troll question. So this is a question asked by somebody on Instagram who is not necessarily supportive of uh, decolonization or independence. May I may I go at it first? Oh yes, you may. So this person asks, isn't decolonization just trying to turn back the clock? Since we can't do that, why should we try to decolonize? Right, right. Yeah, this this is a this is perhaps a, a big misconception about what decolonization is and it's I don't know where this uh, misconception comes from but the point is is that factually there's just so much empirical it's just factually incorrect through all metrics whether that is through looking at history economics or anything that is just so incorrect because people who assume this for example decolonization just trying to turn the back they think that decolonization would mean that we have to go back like 4,000 years ago to the Stone Age or something like that, where, you know, where, where we can't use Ericon anymore, where we can't, where we have to grow all of our food we can't import. But that's just factually incorrect. What decolonization is, is, is turning our non-self-governance territory into one of the accepted political status by the United Nations given. And it does not mean all of a sudden going back into the past and, you know, and living like that. It does not mean that at all. It, it simply means, you know, a change of the, the political status. It's, it, it's just factually incorrect by, a, by every single metric. And this is one of those myths that should just be thrown back into the graveyard. Mm. Agreed. I like to think of decolonization as a conversation over what we do with colonial legacies. Now, there is decolonization in a very strict political sense, changing a political status, but it can be a larger way of thinking about where, where, where we have come, how we got here, but what do we do next? So it, is, it isn't about uh, turning back the clock, but it is about looking at what has happened and then thinking, are we on the right path? Or were we kind of taken on the wrong path at a certain point? And should we try to, try to get ourselves someplace better? And so a lot of things get sucked up into that potential conversation, right? Because we look at how the island has improved, how it's become more modernized, and there's, there's things that we like about that modernization, but we can also see that we've lost things and there's ways that it doesn't benefit us, it hurts us, right? And so when we look at, so some people talk about sort of decolonizing our diet, for example, 
And what that means then is it doesn't mean you go back to only eating uh, swordfish and coconut and lemai. <laughs> you only go back to eating what we had before the colonizers came. But it does mean looking at how our colonial relationship to the U.S. has affected our diet, the things that go end up in our stores, the things that we put in put on our tables, the things we put in our stomachs, and and so because we are a colony, so other places may have those conversations. They may call it something different, but because we are a colony, our colonial relationship to the U.S. gets wrapped up in so many of these things. So for other islands in in Micronesia, for example, they may attack this issue of their diet because many of them struggle with the same problems that we do in terms of health. They may talk about it in terms of uh, westernization. They may talk about it in terms of, of that. But in Guam, because we are a colony, so much of the choices that we make are influenced by our political status, even if we don't think about it. And ideally, you want to break away from that. You want to get, get rid of that feeling of dependency, inadequacy, and just feeling of helplessness and disempowerment that comes from being a possession of another. But yeah, I mean, it was a troll question, but it is a good question. Troll questions are not necessarily bad questions. I think I asked that question. You, you may. <laughs> Let's do another troll question. Let's do number eight. And so this was uh, a comment that an, an older Chamorro gentleman uh, left me. He wrote... You marched and you had a conference. Now what? So a little botlon there. He's a little got a little bit of the, the sarcasm. But what he is referring to is the Fanogi March, which happened earlier this month. More than 2,000 people came and marched. The Fanhita Conference, which happened about a week ago or more, um, in which a couple hundred people attended and sort of saw a bunch of presentations from people from the Caribbean, the Pacific, locally as well. And so there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of, there's possibly some momentum around the status issue, status change. And so this question seems to ask, that's really nice that you're excited, but what, what are you going to do? What's supposed to happen next? And so for me, if somebody asks something like this, I always remember that for your average person, this is actually kind of a reasonable question because they haven't read all of the stuff that I've read. Um, they may devote a lot of time to thinking about other things, not the way that I think about these things all the time. So it's normal for them to ask, so what do we do now? What happens next? So that's why for me, I, whenever I get like a troll like question like this, I always just change the intonation and then it's a, it can be a productive question. Oh, what are we going to do now, Brittany? <laughs> <laughs> so that's like, that's, that's like a ditzy question. It's like a, a dismissive question. But if you change the intonation, what are we going to do now? What then do now? then it's, it's earnest. Like, I, I would like to know. Like, can, can you help me understand? So oftentimes when people ask uh, jerky questions like that, I just change the intonation. And then um, it's like kind of when you've got haters out there, you imagine that they're little bunny rabbits or little puppy dogs. And they're like, oh, I'm a communist, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, oh, you're so cute. You're such a little dumb lesser life form. You, you're so cute. Oh, you're so cute. Yes. Did you talkie? Did you talkie? Oh, yes, you did. Oh, are you rubbing in your talkie? Yes. So anyways, that's one way that I deal with haters is I imagine wow. that they're... Uh, <laughs> that wow, they're, no. that, that they're, they're cute little puppies cute little puppies they made a boom boom on the floor floor they don't know any better <laughs> and so but the question is now what well okay you have to think about this in different ways there's things that people in the community can do and then there's things that elected leaders can do and so in the community, one of the main things that you should be doing is that you should be learning about this. Because this conversation, this idea of status change is only scary if you don't know anything about it. It only, if you do learn about it, then you 
realize it's okay. Yeah, there's no matter what status we choose, there's there may be some problems, some potential risks. No tatsuga, things can be better. We'll, we we could be in a much better position if we were to become either freely associated, independent, or a state. And so education is that first key. So for all the people that are dismissive and blah, 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 apprehensive, afraid, if you learned more about it, you don't have to agree with what I feel or what I want. But if you learn about it, then you at least have to understand that it's not as scary as, as a lot of people think. There's, I always remind people there's some of the richest countries in the world are the same size as Guam. And Guam in our current size and with our current economy is larger than several dozen other nations in the world. And so any idea that we can't become independent, we can't become a state, couldn't be freely associated, simply not true. It can definitely happen. And we should educate ourselves and take ourselves seriously enough to work to make it happen. So that's for the regular community. Independent Guahan has lots of events. If you're interested in other statuses, contact them, their task forces. Ask them to have meetings so that you can attend them. Now for our leaders, what should we do for our leaders? What should our leaders do? Pulan, what do you think? Pulan. <laughs> so, you know, so you know well, what one of the things, an important part of any type of political status change, and this is looking at all the examples that happened, you know, within the past 80 years, is that the, the elected leaders or whoever the leaders are, that they need to negotiate with the administering power concerning about self-determination, concerning about a self-determination referendum, if there's going to be one, to negotiate with the United States about that, you know, deciding when will this referendum be held, who will be allowed to vote, and so on. And so the one thing then is to, for the elected leaders, is to, again, push, push, you know, through our delegate or you know, through uh, petitions or whatever, but push with Congress, talk to them to say that, hey, you know, we we are asking, we are demanding for our referendum to happen. You know, whether if there's going to be a referendum, we are demanding for this to happen. And, you know, and these are the stipulations, you know, do you agree or not? And I think that that's the thing that the elected leaders, if we want to have an immediate, an immediate, you know, change, media decolonization, it's going to have to be through a mutual negotiated, you know, way, just like how in New Caledonia and France, how they had the Nomea Accords mm. or how in South Sudan and Sudan, how they had the comprehensive peace agreement, which laid out how South Sudan will have their self-determination referendum. So that's the one thing that must happen for the elected leaders. And as, as, mm. uh, as Chad Bivakwa said, for the, for the uh, you know the the community members. Well, that's a nice pose the right there. For the for the for the the community members, we we also have a responsibility ourselves to educate ourselves. We can't just throw this issue to our elected leaders and then expect them to do everything, to do all the thinking. No, us ourselves, we have to educate ourselves. We have to inform ourselves, and you could. Do that, for example, by going through any of the three task forces. If you're interested, you can do that by subscribing to Pulan Speaks because I <laughs> will make videos on this topic or doing your own research. So again, that I, I think those are the things, the immediate steps or whatever that we could do after. Now what? You know, if you're saying that now what? Yes, this is what you know people have been saying ever since. Just that events such as the march, events such as the Fenogi conference, what they do is it brings back into the consciousness of the island rather than being, you know, in the back long-term memory, not thought of. Very true, very true. I think one thing that we should remember um, in terms of sort of this issue is uh, Ron Rivera, the late Ron Rivera, was on the Commission on Self-Determination and Decolonization. He always used to say that when the people lead, the leaders will follow. 
And so we have to remember this, that it is a democracy. The people have to respond, excuse me, the leaders have to respond to the people. And so this is one reason why certain political leaders are taking this issue a little bit more seriously, because they can see that there is a significant part of the community that cares about decolonization or that would like a political status change, that believes in it. And so therefore they have to leave. They have, they have to lead. They need to sort of show that they're doing something. But um, we always have to kind of, we always have to remember, we, um, decolonization and political status change, sometimes people feel like you shouldn't do it because we're not mature enough, right? They say that, and uh, the, the congressman recently sort of used the idea of adulting, that until you can adult, like you shouldn't decolonize. But part of the problem is, is that how do you, if you feel that sort of we are not mature enough or that we don't do enough, that we're not good at self-governance, what do you do about it? So one suggestion is let the feds make all of our decisions for us, but that's not a good decision. That's not, that's like, you know, that's like if you're having trouble in your marriage, what do you do? You call the police to tell you what to do. <laughs> or like if you can't figure out how to arrange your house, you call the governor to tell you what to do in your house. It doesn't quite make sense. And so um, we always got to remember that this conversation is actually what is needed to take our governance more seriously. Because if we stop thinking in sort of this dependent framework, in this framework where, yeah, we don't gotta take care of things because somebody else is always gonna sort of write a check to save us. Well, that's, that's, that's the status quo. We all believe that the federal government is a liberator who's gonna save us and that we don't gotta take our decisions seriously. Well, guess what? Guess what can actually help you take those things seriously is pushing for a new political status where your decisions have greater weight because you're no longer this possession anymore. So when people talk about how we can't trust because our leaders are bad or we're not ready for it, this is how you get ready for it, is you have an intelligent conversation about it. You debate and you deliberate and you figure it out and you learn to take seriously your own governance. I mean, think about, I always use the example, and I've mentioned it many times on Fenatsu. I always connect our status to litter because if you feel like this island is not really yours, it's where America's day begins, then who the hell cares? It's not my problem. And so we always somehow, many people think that that mentality comes from us and it's part of our quote unquote culture or the failure, failure of our culture. It's a common thing for people who feel disempowered because you're taught in a million ways that you don't matter, you don't have rights, and this is somebody else's land. So what do you care? Why should I care about this place when the school system and the, and the congressman and everybody is telling me that it's America's, it's not mine, it's not ours. And so think about it. If you want people to really own this place and take responsibility for it, then you have to have a conversation which will connect them to it. There's a, an educator who said, before we ask children to save the world, we must teach them to love it. And that's where we are right now, is that we have a system, educational systems, media systems, governmental systems, all these things which basically disconnect us from the island. And then we're expected to love this place when everything around us, including some of our leaders, tell us that it sucks and we suck. Anyways, next question. Wow. <laughs> I could go on about that. That was deep. I Both could go Todd on. Don't get All right, let's, 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 let's take it down a notch. My... <laughs> this is one of the most important <laughs> questions that was asked in this entire episode. Let's do four. <laughs> Let's do four. 
<laughs> We're gonna take it down. We've been we've been way up here. Let's take it down to here. Question from one of our patrons: When did you start growing your beard? <laughs> That's actually a legitimate question. When did you start? And why did you start growing your beard? <laughs> Wait. So interestingly enough, somebody had a meme before. Uh, they had a picture of me when I had short hair and, and a short beard, and it was like, what grew first, the ego or the beard? <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> but um, I started, I don't know, 2014, 2014, well, no, so I've always had a beard. The last time I had no beard whatsoever was like 2008. Eight, when I was completely shaven and I didn't like the way that I looked <laughs> without a beard. And so I've, I've always had a beard since, but in 2014, I started growing it out. I've trimmed it several times, like once a year or something. I'll, I'll trim it a little bit. It used to be kind of out here. But um, yes, don't make any connections that the beard has some role in the decolonization movement or anything like that. Uh, that if we trim it, we'll lose support we'll or lose. something. The the passion will die. Although I have been thinking about cutting my hair because uh, I don't know what to do with it. But um, yeah. But anyway, so thank you for your question about my beard. Uh, and remember that uh, the the <laughs> Paul Zerzan in his infinite wisdom said that because I have a beard, I shouldn't be allowed to go and talk at the United Nations on behalf of Guam what? because I look like a colonizer, not like a native person. He actually said that? He did. Are you serious? <laughs> no, I'm serious. He wrote it. He wrote it. The fuck? <laughs> what? Really? Yeah, he did. He wrote it in a letter to the... Or it might have been a column, actually, when he it's, had a column in the post. But yeah, so I don't know. I like having a beard because... And I'm a... You know, I'm a respectful person in many ways, but I do have a Taima Malau streak in me. And so growing out the beard actually goes back to when I was living with my grandparents and I was going to UOG and I would grow my beard out and my grandfather would always tell me, you can't have a beard like that. And I'd be like, well, why not? And he'd be like, only old men or priests can have beards <laughs> like that. <laughs> And he would tell me, you haven't earned the beard. Oh. You have to earn it. And I was like, oh. But grandpa telling me that I couldn't have a beard made me want to have a beard even more. And so he would always uh, question my beard for many years. So I do have feel guy respect to guy I'm so sorry about that. Okay, let's do here. Oh, here, let's do a tro let's do a mean troll. What how much what time are we at? Okay. Okay, wait. Here, this is a real troll one. <laughs> All right, number 13. <laughs> All right. Someone on Facebook was kind enough to leave this question. The Fanogi March seemed more like a campaign event for Robert Underwood than anything else. Is he finally admitting to being the leader of the local separatist movement? <laughs> is all this just a con to get him back into political office? Do you have any thoughts on this? It's I completely agree <laughs> with this. This is Robert Underwood's secret method to attaining power so he could finally become a dictator. No, but, uh, you know, the, I mean, there's, there's just several things. It's, I, first of all, you know, um, you know I, I talked about this earlier, which is, how is this a separatist movement if Guam and the United States, if they're not, if Guam isn't integrated with the United States? So this is not a separatist movement. Not at all. You know, Guam would first have to be integrated with the United States. And then if it tries to uh, become independent or secede, then it'll be considered separatist, just like the CSA, the Confederate States of America. Now that's a separatist movement. Uh, and second thing, you know, a campaign event for Robert Underwood, you know what? If you think that this was a campaign event for Robert Underwood, then I highly, I, I probably suspect you weren't there or you haven't read any of the pamphlets or yeah, you weren't there perhaps. 
Yeah. Because if you were actually there, you know that that Robert Underwood was not at all campaigning for anything. He was he was saying the same things he's been saying for decades, and other people were also saying the same thing. And it would actually be a a very bad way to campaign if you're just you know attempting to appeal to this one uh, self determination thing. You know. And it's it's just such a ridiculous thing to think as a campaign. So again, you weren't there or you haven't read anything about it. That's what I suspect. But for those people who were actually there, who were involved or people who read about it or looked at the pamphlet, then it was obviously like by 100% assertion, not a campaign event. But you know, I actually had, the fact I actually had to entertain a question like this just really makes me angry. Mm. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I can understand a little bit why some people might feel that, although not as strongly as that, just because he was an organizer. So, um, you know, I was part of the Fanogi committee that organized the march, and Underwood was very involved. I think he was excited uh, sort of to to get some of that spirit, that energy back from the past. Um you know, and, and at the Fanogi March, we honored other uh, activists that have been involved, whether with OPIR or Nashon Chamorro. And so, you know, I can see why some people, especially in sort of the very strange partisan climate nowadays, they might just want to want to try to tear down the event by saying that it had a, a former politician at the head of it so or weird. as part of it. But it, it that's simply, you know, who... Uh, yeah. If you were there, you wouldn't have felt that, that's for sure. Uh-uh. And then even if you saw what uh, was written about it and what people said about it, no, definitely not. And even if, even if Underwood did want to run for office again, it's his right to run for office. I mean, there's this weird sort of thing because of, and I think a lot of it has to do with sort of the the delegate and people who are supportive of the delegate, they see uh, when the uh, when the two when his two predecessors say something, they see that as like a huge betrayal, um, and that they should just move on with their lives and stop living with in the past and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't see the issue. I mean, people may not like Underwood for certain reasons. They may not support him for certain reasons. But he was a leader on Guam for many years, and he's done a lot of good things. Um, you could still be critical of his legacy too in some ways if you wanted. Um, but to sort of diminish him to just like a partisan hack really doesn't make any sense. And it really is just shows that transparently you're just trying to bring down the march or you're right. just trying to attack him. Right. And you're not even really thinking about oh, any of the yeah. issues involved. And, and you know, the... You know, according to this logic that any former politician who does anything with a community event would be considered campaigning. So mm-hmm. whether that was, you know, literally anyone, whether that was, you know, with the Greta, the whole Greta climate marches, you had politicians supporting it to marching it there. So were mm-hmm. they all former, pol- were they all, you know, trying to get the presidency of some of those countries? Mm-hmm. You know, it's just such a ridiculous, illogical question. It just, yeah. Yeah. And so for our final question, let's go to number 10. And so this is, uh, so the question is, I couldn't make it to the Fenhita conference. Where can I read the presentations or watch the video of the event? And so uh, the presentations, um, I need to check. I have uh, only a, some of the presenters have submitted presentations. I was an, a co-organizer for the conference. And so I do have a Dropbox uh, where the presentations are at. I just need to, to check with the commission to make sure that I can share them with the, the public. And then I'm happy to make the Dropbox available to anyone who wants to read them. UOG Press has expressed interest in publishing the proceedings from the conference. And so we're working towards that. PBS uh, recorded the event and they have been... Um, they're supposed to re-release it in some form. They're supposed to rebroadcast it and re-release it. I don't know have any updates on that, unfortunately. Um, although I do feel bad because um, K 
Ken Leon Guerrero was very critical of the live stream. And I don't think he realized that he was watching the Fanatsu live stream, which was totally just a phone in the back of the room and was not actually the KGTF live stream. But he thought it was the KGTF live stream. And I feel bad. <laughs> the KGTF one was the good one. Yeah, no, the Fanatsu one was just in case was... the KGTF one went out. It was a phone at the back wall. <laughs> but I really think he was, and I feel bad for Melvin because Melvin was like, because Ken Leon Grow hit hard on Melvin Wampat Borja, the executive director of the commission, saying the live stream was terrible. And and when he was describing it, he's like, it looked it looked like all they wanted to do was show the banner and they didn't care about the presenters. I was like, oh shit, that's the Fanatsu live stream. The, the Fanatsu. Because it's, it's just a phone on a it's it's probably just this phone. <laughs> the phone we're using right on, now. On a iPhone. tripod. <laughs> it wasn't hooked into the audio. It was just there because some people said they couldn't get on the PBS stream. So we just set it up. But like I felt bad. I was like, and when Ken LG was going after Melvin, I texted him. I was like, hey, Melvin, dispense it. So I think he's confused about the live stream he was watching. So so Ken LG, we, we apologize for the Fanyatsu live stream. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll move it up next time because it, it was seriously, I saw it too. It was... Not the greatest live stream too, so you are right in that sense. <laughs> What's it so supposed to be? Yeah, but we're, we're, I, I, I apologize for that. Wait, why did we have it back there? Because it was next to a plug? Because <laughs> yeah, it was next to a plug. <laughs> yeah, for the phone. Because the... Anyways, we made, uh, we made Melvin's life a little bit miserable last week. But um, so, yes, I'm sure that we will post updates uh, on that. And I'm sure it'll be out in the news for when it's out there. But Sidus Masi to Pulan. And Sidus Masi no Toro Samsu. Hago Lokwi Siguanzama. And so Pulan, Koguana Malaguhao Plumog. Ugan, Ugan, Bungalafa. Subscribe. Ki Pulan Speaks. Ki YouTube channel sa. Ufatines e videos nui finu tsamoru zan otru tsamoru related kosas nai. So pofa both subscribe zan munga malefa nai. Educate yourselves nai. Okay. Sidus masi pulen and nutoro samsu hugofa gredesi supporten midzu. Munga malefa, munga enfan malefa nai na hamzu muna posisibliesi kololonia hamzu ni sumapopote hit gi Patreon. Hamzu mengi men kiriduhu, you're my favorite. Hungan. <laughs> you know, I want to get Andy with all of you. Dispensadzo. Dispensadzo. PG 13, check. I mean, uh, ideologically, Andy. Ah, okay. I don't mean anything else. Yeah. But I'm just. Gininifondo ni corazonhu, zahunaina besangani hamzu sidzusmasi. And to all of you, remember uh, if you enjoy our content, if you enjoy this, like, comment, subscribe. Isn't that what the YouTubers say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but support us on Patreon. Hamzunai ni YouTubers and now isesu sending on Mizuno. Like, comment, subscribe. And so, adios hasta ki otro semana. We will see you later.